Happy Thanksgiving from Charlotte. I'm James Briarton. Florida's red tide has returned. The bacteria bloom can be toxic and deadly. This week, a look back at our 2018 interview with Dr. Tracy Fernara, an environmental engineer and scientist. everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We welcome you to the Wednesday, November 28, 2018 edition of our little weather get together. Tonight is show number 256 and we have with us Dr. Tracy Farna. Uh, she is uh, from Sarasota, Florida. She is a uh, scientist at the Moat Marine and Laboratory, Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium in Sarasota, Florida. She's also a graduate of the University of Florida. Go Gators. That's where I put my Go Gators in there right there. But anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about the red tide tonight. Uh, I know it's uh, kind of been a big story. If you uh, live here in the southeast and if you vacation maybe in Florida or the Gulf Coast, you've heard a lot about the red tide. So we're going to get into that tonight, talk about what's causing it, the effects that it's having on the area, and maybe how the weather is contributing uh, to the red tide. So with that, let's bring in our guest again. This is uh, Dr. Tracy Farna, and uh, she is with the Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, Tracy, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you this evening. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, so we were talking before the show, you're not really in warm, balmy Florida this evening. It's kind of chilly down there as well. Yeah, it is. And we're not prepared for it. I, you know, I'm dressed like it's, it's, you know, negative 30, but it's like 50. We're just not, you know, I'm from Buffalo, but it, it doesn't count. Yeah, once you get that Florida blood in you, you can't you can't get rid of it. So uh, we want to talk to you, Ed. Uh, you have uh, been doing a lot of research and a lot of uh, information gathering on the red tide, and um, you made an appearance on the Weather Channel, which uh, I saw, and I was like, we need to get Tracy on our show to talk about this. So uh, first of all, we'd like to ask you, uh, what is the red tide? What What is this uh, this thing that's going on that a lot of us are hearing about? Maybe a lot of us outside of Florida don't really understand what the red tide is. So Florida red tide is a common name for a species called Karenia brevis and in large concentration. So basically we get 70% of our oxygen from phytoplankton, but one to 2% of those phytoplankton are harmful, meaning that they can release a toxin that harms aquatic life. Florida red tide is one of those species. Uh, and when that, what makes it so unique is that when that toxin is released, not only can it harm aquatic life, but it can always also aerosolize. It can attach onto sea salt particles in the atmosphere, move on shore with winds, and cause respiratory irritation in healthy individuals. But for those with asthma or COPD, this can be very serious. So, um, although you know Florida red tide is specific to the Gulf of Mexico, phytoplankton is all over the world. And so it has a lot of effects. So talk to us about uh, the, the different causes of the red tide and, and maybe what harms it brings. And maybe particularly the what we've heard a lot about uh, is the, uh, the harm that it brings to the marine wildlife. And um, how has that been impacted in Florida? Maybe is there certain species that are more prone to this thing than others? Okay, that's a lot of questions, but I will try. You got to remind me if I forget to answer one of them. So what causes red tide? Red tide um, has been around. We've had the earliest 
anecdotal uh, reports of red tide in the 1500s by Spanish explorers. They were talking about red water and fish kills. Uh, we know that since NOAA has been recording Florida red tide, um, there has been one recorded pretty much every year since the 80s. So it is a native species. Um, naturally occurring, it occurs on the ocean floor and with currents and upwelling, those blooms are brought to the top. And then with currents and winds, they are brought on shore. Now, if a bloom is close enough to shore to utilize surface water nutrients, uh, it very well may to sustain or exacerbate um, so as far as what, what makes a bloom initiate, there are many different parameters. And honestly, you know, we haven't had a consistent data stream or enough data to be able to answer a lot of questions about initiation that now we're going to hopefully be able to attack moving forward. So we kind of know the ingredients, but not exactly the recipe of that exact initiation. Um, so it, it all comes into play with physical oceanography, uh, biology, and water chemistry, all of it combined um, and, and different, uh, different factors or different uh, ratios of, of different chemical makeups, biological um, makeups, and also those, those currents come together for an initiation. And the same thing with dissipation, except there's you know, more to talk about that. And I'm sure that you'll ask that question later. But as far as um, how it affects the wildlife. So brevitoxin is a neurotoxin. And for us, it blocks our sodium channels and causes us to, to cough or sneeze, itchy eyes, itchy nose. Uh, for fish, uh, it affects them the same way, but it suffocates them. And that's why they, they die in actually an intense bloom pretty quickly. Um, now, with the megafauna like manatee and, and dolphin, they're actually affected by ingestion. So dolphin eat fish that are affected by the red tide toxin and manatee um, eat seagrass. And the toxin can accumulate on something called epiphytes that, that are attached to that seagrass that the manatee are eating. So in the necropsies that we've done with, with dolphin, for example, most of the toxin is found in the gut. However, it's found all over the body. It has spread to other organs, but the majority of the toxin is in the gut because it is through ingestion that they, that they are affected. I see, I keep doing this. I've done this five years and I still forget to unmute my mic. Um, so there has been some studies also that maybe uh, the blue-green, the freshwater algae uh, maybe is it increasing the red tide? Kind of talk to us about the different types of algae plumes that, that you guys face there in Florida and maybe how they kind of play off of each other. Yeah, so we do have, we had a, a state of emergency in the state of Florida due to two red, separate red tide blooms, and they are very different species caused by very different things. So we know that um, Florida red tide, phytoplankton, harmful phytoplankton starts on the ocean bottom comes up to the top with currents. Uh, but freshwater cyanobacteria, that's a little bit different. Freshwater cyanobacteria blooms are a problem worldwide. We have problems with them in Lake Erie. For example, the city of Toledo had water drinking water problems because um, a species of cyanobacteria called uh, microcystis was, was found in their drinking water source and the toxin was possibly in their drinking water. You know, so this has been a problem worldwide. And the the thing is with freshwater cyanobacteria is that a lot of it is preventable. Um, nutrients 
is a big factor in initiating those kind of blooms. And, you know, we've done so much to change the water cycle. So naturally the water, it would rain, water would infiltrate through the ground and, and into the soil. And, you know, very slowly now that we have urbanized our land, what is happening is we are changing the water cycle. The water cycle rules the world and we change it every time we lay any kind of pavement or pervious surface on the ground. And what happens is that water runs off really fast, high volumes causing erosion, causing flooding, but but also brings pollutants from from pavements, from fertilizer, from grass, from agriculture, from wherever, and it brings it to our natural water bodies. A lot of people don't realize that every single drop of water that lands on the state of Florida ends up in our natural water bodies. And the more that we change that water cycle, the more those pollutants are going to get into our surface water without the natural degradation from uh, biological, physical, and chemical factors that the natural water cycle allows. So the more we build, the more fertilizer we use, the more freshwater cyanobacteria blooms we will have. Now there are over 2000 species of cyanobacteria. There are marine species that are freshwater species. The species that we had an issue with in Florida around the Clusahatchee, St. Lucie and Lake Okeechobee is called microcystin. It's the same thing that was in Lake Erie. Uh, it releases a toxin called microcystin. Um, so they are two very different things. One's a, a cyanobacteria, so it is a photosynthetic bacteria. The other one is a phytoplankton. One is marine and needs very saline conditions. The other is um, freshwater. Tracy, as folks in the Carolinas might be preparing for a beach trip this holiday season, visiting relatives, walking the beach. How can they keep themselves informed on where this is um, and so they can plan accordingly during their trips? It's a really good question. Because the, the Florida red tide bloom is very patchy, there are conditions constantly change. So the bloom moves with currents, but also depending on wind direction, uh, you might experience respiratory irritation at one beach and you might not to a beach a mile to the south. That's why we at Moat Marine Laboratory developed the beach conditions reporting system in 2006 and then redeveloped it in 2015. So it shows beach conditions that anyone would want to know going to the beach from 37 Gulf Coast beaches, including those red tide effects like respiratory irritation and dead fish. So it's really important to check that. Our trained beach sentinels update that map twice daily uh, another good resource is the NOAA Respiratory Irritation Forecast. It's a five-day forecast, and it uses cell counts, including ones collected at Moat, um, in a mo forecasting model which uses winds and currents to forecast where the effects of red tide, such as respiratory irritation, might be experienced. Also, Florida Fish and Wildlife have a sample map, which you saw earlier, um, and that sample map shows the past eight days worth of samples and where locations where they are high, medium, or low. So all of that information combined with satellite imagery gives you a pretty good idea um, of where the bloom is. And that beach conditions reporting system is really important because that actually tells someone at the beach what they're going to be experiencing, which is really important when making those decisions going to a beach. 
And to complement the beach conditions reporting system, we have Seasick, which is a citizen science smartphone application that allows anyone from anywhere to report beach conditions, including red tide effects, respiratory irritation, and dead fish, to fill in those blanks between BCRS sites and, and time, because those conditions can change regularly. So it's really important to stay informed. So Tracy, uh, Bernie Sabo, a viewer of ours that, that watches a lot of shows, kind of was tying into my next question. How does the weather affect the red tide? And more importantly, how does sea surface temperatures? I know that this kind of starts inland, but then it goes out into the Gulf and even some cases in the Atlantic. So how does the weather affect it? And how does the sea surface temperatures really affect this uh, red tide? Yeah, actually, red tide starts out in the ocean, but freshwater cyano does start inland. Um, but so temperatures play a big role in any kind of phytoplankton. Um, as far as Florida red tide goes, you know, Florida red tide, Corinia brevis, does not act the same way in the natural environment that it does in a laboratory. And I have to preface what I'm about to say with saying that. But in laboratory studies, researchers have found that the sweet spot or the ideal temperature range for Corinia brevis is between 60 and 86 degrees. Now that is a huge temperature window. However, you know, a lot of people are asking the questions right now because our air temperature is beneath 60 degrees. Is that going to come into play and dissipate this current Florida red tide bloom? Which is a really good question. But the truth is that even though the air temperature might be below 60 degrees, it doesn't necessarily mean that the water temperature will be. Um, in addition, Corinia brevis can exist throughout the entire water column. It is a dinoflagellate. It, you know, it can move up and down. Um, and so just because the surface water temperature might be below 60 degrees, it doesn't mean that the temperature two or three feet underneath it will be even. Um, so for today, for example, it was in the 50s in Sarasota, but the, the temperature of the surface water temperature of the ocean was still 70, 72 degrees. So it would take very long sustained periods of cold temperatures to have any possible effect. And then even then it's not, you know, for sure that that those that that water temperature would completely dissipate a bloom. There are so many different factors that go into it. And you, you talked about this a little bit earlier in, in one of the model runs, but how is NOAA, and maybe in particularly the National Weather Service offices in Florida, how are they monitoring this? I've seen a post earlier, I think it was from the Tallahassee office um, earlier this morning talking about the red tide. So how does NOAA and the, the local weather offices, how do, what is their role or, or part in, in the red tide? So NOAA does a lot of modeling and forecasting. So they take a lot of the data that we collect and FWC collects, other entities collect, and they put it into a model. So that five-day forecasting model is actually a NOAA product. They're also working on, we, we are contracted on a project with them called Habscope. It's a cell phone microscope that allows citizen scientists to take a cell phone, it's literally a microscope with a cell phone on top of it, to the beach, take a sample of water, put it underneath the microscope, they upload a 30 second video of their sample. There's an algorithm in the app that they use to upload the video that can calculate the concentration of red tide based on its shape, size, and movement. That information automatically goes to a neurorespiratory irritation model 
so that we can have real-time respiratory irritation results. And NOAA is the lead on that project as well. It's NOAA and GICUS. So as far as weather goes, you know, you guys were talking about the hurricanes earlier, and that's really important because a lot of people ask why this bloom was so bad. And there are quite a few answers to that question. So there's so many different things that come into play, like, like I said about initiation. Um, but this year we had a number of things happen. For example, we had that hurricane, uh, Hurricane Irma, uh, about a month before this hurricane bloom season started. So this bloom started in October 2017. Uh, Irma was in September. And so NOAA and NASA have made correlations between hurricane events and really long blooms. We saw this happen in 2004, 5, and 6 when we had an 18-month bloom. In the 90s, we had a two-year bloom that was preceded by a hurricane event. So there is that connection. In addition, you know, with this, um, with the, um, the winter, our winter was a little bit, um, a little bit warmer and then we had a lot of rain and a rainy season so not only what did we have that hurricane we also had temperatures staying within the prime the best range for crania brevis to exist and then we had a rainy season that came in bringing surface water nutrients to the coastal waters um, where we already had an existing red tide bloom and then because we had a rainy summer it kept the gulf temperatures a little bit cooler um, so a lot of things coming into play, um, along with the Florida loop current, uh, which in certain cases can, can be conducive for Florida red tide blooms, and this year was one of those cases. So there's just a lot of things coming into play. Tracy, that, that's actually uh, it's perfect timing, because uh, that was going to be my next question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a screen so folks can kind of see what we're talking about. When we talk about the loop current, the loop eddy. Uh, and you know, this is just a general, uh, it, this, this sort of meanders a little bit. The loop current meanders north to south a little bit, but the eddy is pretty much there year round, sometimes a little bit further to the south. And talk a little bit about bathymetrics. Like we're, we're talking about underneath the water where we have cool water underneath that is upwelled to the surface and how that cool water and that those growths down there, those um, organisms down there react with the organisms at the surface when they're brought up from their environment to the top and they die, they are basically eaten by other uh, organisms. So talk a little bit about how all this sort of begins, especially using the loop current. Um, honestly, I'm not the best person to go into detail about the loop current. Bob Weisberg from USF is definitely the best person to talk about how red tide and the loop current are connected. Um, at Moon Marine Laboratory, we really focus on the chemistry and the biology, um, al along with the with the physical oceanography. I'm just not the best person to answer that. No, sure, I totally understand. But I mean, you, you did bring up like active hurricane seasons, which that right. that you know, especially in the Gulf, when you get active hurricane act, you know activity in that area, that can tend to to well up some of those uh, right. So that's that's exactly. That's exactly what happens. You, it's like a forced upwelling event where that bottom water is taken to the top along with those cells and nutrients. And that's how, you know, that's what's thought to start that initial red tide physical um, aspect of the bloom. All right, especially with Irma, you brought up Irma because those were offshore winds for most of Gulf side Florida where we actually had negative um, tidal surge going on. And so you also think what's happening offshore, that happens a lot of right. time, even on the eastern United States, where you get offshore winds and really strong offshore winds causes cool water upwelling. So that, like you said, it starts offshore and works its way into the coast. 
Yeah, so I, I, I got our next question here. Um, some awesome information because I'm learning a lot about the red tide myself. You know, with the, we, we often associate, especially us up here, red tide with uh, Florida. Does it does it pose a, an, an effect of the coastal Carolinas, you know, from from you know, South Carolina coastline up, up across the Outer Banks? It's a really good question. So only eight times in the since the 50s has Florida red tide gone to the east coast of Florida even. Only twice has it made it above Florida. And one time it made it to North Carolina. The other time it made it all the way to Delaware. So it's a possibility, but it would be un unique. Awesome. Just good information. <clears throat> you had a, were you up next? Yeah, I, I was. I was trying to mute myself. Um, so, Tracy, how how often does the red tide happen? I know we were we we're talking about, but is there is there a peak season that we see more growth, or or is it all year round? What what's the the peak season for uh, for the red tide? So, the typical season for red tide is late summer, early fall till till winter. Um, that's typical, but red tide can happen any time of year, as we've seen. Um, now, that being said, with the question is, with climate change, will this season shift? And if it shifts, will it shift into the rainy season, causing longer blooms to be a normal thing? Uh, we don't know the answer to that yet, but that is something that we are looking into. Okay, I guess the next question comes to me. And um, we, you talked a little bit earlier about brevitoxins, right? So neurotoxins. And um, I have a lot of friends down in Florida that were reporting on social media outlets and, and telling me, hey, look, you know, there's there's issues here and sending me pictures of beaches being closed in, say, Fort Lauderdale area, all the way up the eastern coast, north to near Cocoa Beach, Florida. Um, also over towards Fort Walton, the Tampa Bay, Sarasota area being the main concentrate for a lot of these brevitoxins. But the folks talking about respiratory issues, they got they were coughing a lot. Their eyes got watery. Um, blurred vision, you know, things like that. And, and talk a little bit about the neurotoxins, what they're doing to you that you may only see the outside symptoms. May, is there something deeper going on that we need to be concerned about? That's a really good question. A lot of people ask what the long-term effects of brevitoxin exposure are. And there's a lot of unknowns. There are some, you know, supporting evidence with other species that it can possibly have some kind of immune impact long-term. However, those impacts haven't been defined yet. And a lot of the reason is uh, humans haven't been exposed to it in a chronic way enough to connect any kind of, um, any kind of disease or illness with, with brevitoxin specifically because there are so many different factors that come into play. And we have these blooms for months at a time, years at a time, weeks at a time. Um, and so people aren't always exposed to that every single day. So I think it's hard to make that link unless you're doing an exact study. So I think moving forward, a lot of people are looking at doing um, lung studies or different parts of the body where you can use a fabricated um, organ and see how the toxin affects that organ. Um, I know that I was talking to the University of Florida about doing something like that. And I think that they're doing it with microcystine now. So we'll, um, we'll see what happens and, and where funding goes and if that will be a possibility to really hone in on those long-term possible impacts. Yeah. I've heard it's pretty dangerous even just to experiment with that stuff. Um, is that, is that what's, what causes this to, what causes it to be like this or is this a defense mechanism or is it just the, the nature of it? 
Yeah, I mean, like a lot of plants, they they can defend themselves. Um, and so we're not sure what Corneobrevis's role was in the ecosystem to where they developed this mechanism. But that's the, the one of the theories that is that it is a defense mechanism. Doing with a little quick technical thing there. So if people watching live maybe uh, just dropped out for a second. Welcome back uh, as we continue our conversation about Red Tide. Uh, Tracy, what I wanted to ask is a little bit more about the mobile app. What's it called? Where can people find it? And what type of public data have you been receiving from it? Good question. So we do have mobile apps. They're free on iTunes and Google Play, CSIC, CSIC, get it, CSIC, um, <laughs> but it's Citizen Science Information Collaboration. We really forced the acronym, um, but that is available from Google Play or iTunes for free. And then we also have the BCRS, um, which is searchable by Beach Conditions Reporting System, BCRS or MOTE, M-O-T-E. Um, and that is available for free from Google Play and iTunes as well. Um, so they are available and we've been getting a lot of information. So the BCRS and CSIC both have um, a contact us button where people can actually send us emails and we get a lot of valuable information and additional information on reports from beaches not necessarily reporting that day. Um, so it's it's really been very helpful in having us figure out where to take samples, um, how to alert the public, how to communicate with the public. And it gives um, CSIC, it empowers the public. It gives them a platform to report and voice their their experiences. And with BCRS, it just, it, it allows people to stay connected with the scientists and, um, and understand what's going on with the actual effects at the beach. And Tracy, before um, we, we start to wrap up our conversation here as we approach the nine o'clock hour, um, I want to give you opportunity. Is there anything that we haven't really discussed that that you want to? And I want to also put that with this: How do we? Um, how can we reduce the threat of red tide? Or is there a way that we can totally eliminate it? So maybe there's something we haven't covered. I'd love for you to jump in with that. But also, uh, kind of one of our closing questions: uh, Is there any way that we can reduce this, or maybe even eliminate it altogether? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, as far as eliminating it altogether, because we're not sure what kind of what kind of role it plays in the ecosystem. A lot of scientists actually hypothesize that it plays a really important role in resetting the ecosystem, keeping out invasive um, and exotic species. Uh, so getting rid of it altogether, it's pretty much impossible because, well, it's microscopic. Like if I had a vial like this, it would look completely clear and there could be hundreds of thousands of cells in there. It's microscopic and it's a huge body of water, which has made researching Florida red tide so difficult. But if we were able to get rid of it entirely, I think that if we got to that point where we knew that, we would be able to answer the question of what role it plays in the ecosystem. So that's just a question that I can't totally answer. But as far as reducing it goes, now we know that it's it's native, it's been happening every single year, but we also know that if a bloom is close enough to shore to utilize surface water nutrients, it very well may. So there are many things that we can do right at home. You know, I'm a stormwater engineer and so low impact development and hydrologic restoration are kind of like my passion. So um, reducing our individual nutrient load to the natural water systems, as well as, you know, improving on any 
um, regulations for agricultural lands or new developments, for example, are, are keys for reducing that nutrient load that can possibly be playing a role in um, the intensity and duration of red tide blooms. Now, we haven't found a correlation between any one stream or river network out water outfall and Florida red tide bloom duration or intensity. However, we have found a correlation between total riverine flows and Florida red tide bloom duration, which means that our nutrient loading is coming from so many different places, from many different, many different origins, and they're coming to our coastal waters, and it is potentially playing a role in Florida red tide blooms. We know that. Now, what I'm what I personally am looking to do moving forward is filling in the data gaps um, so that we can have a statewide integrated groundwater and surface water model to prioritize what projects we want to or we need to or should um, look at first on retrofitting or improving um, our BMP best management practices or, um, you know, kind of diverting or reducing the nutrient loading um, to natural water bodies. And I could go more into that and what we can do in our own homes too. I can talk about that stuff all day, but I don't know if we have time for that. Sure. Well, yeah, I would, I would love to hear, you know, that would, that'd be great. Let us, what, what can we do in okay. our homes to help? Because uh, we definitely yeah. want to promote that and, and how we can make, make things better. Awesome. And it's, it's important to know that, you know, reducing the nutrient loading and to the surface waters, the coastal waters wouldn't eliminate red tide blooms. You know, I don't want to give people false hope there, but it can very well eliminate a lot of the freshwater cyanobacteria blooms that we see. Um, so regardless of the role it plays in Florida red tide, um, those freshwater blooms are a big problem as well. So right at our own home. So right now you might notice that rain falls on your roof. It goes into your storm drain, make travel down your driveway into a pipe network. A lot of people don't, don't really think about where that pipe network goes, but it does go into our natural water bodies. So disconnecting that impervious surface and my, uh, dissertation research was actually on doing exactly this. Um, and what I found is that disconnecting that impervious surface was the number one way to restore the hydrologic cycle. Um, so disconnecting that, so taking water that goes into your downspout and putting it into a cistern or into a rain garden or biofilter or infiltration trench or a number of other tools that allow that water to actually infiltrate into the ground allow for that biological, physical, and chemical degradation of pollutants. Um, so anything that does that, implementing pervious pavement and pervious pavers where possible um, can make a huge impact. Green roofs, uh, eliminating, you know, fertilizing during rainy season or using fertilizer at all through using native plant species. Um, all these things are, are really important and make a huge difference. And you might not think that making a difference just at your own home makes a huge difference to the watershed, but it does because if every single person did that little bit, it would make a huge difference. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people, you know, there's one thing that I should probably say, and it's kind of off topic a little bit, but um, I want people to understand the role of nutrients and the difference between nitrogen and phosphorus. 
So nitrogen and phosphorus, there needs to be a certain ratio for production to happen. So a lot of people ask us why we're not focused on phosphorus when we're talking about Florida red tide. And the reason is because there needs to be that ratio. And in marine systems, marine systems are nitrogen limited, meaning that there's plenty of phosphorus around. So the nutrient that we're focused on for that production of Florida red tide is nitrogen. Now with freshwater systems, this is the complete opposite. There's plenty of nitrogen around and it's phosphorus that's a limiting factor. So for freshwater blooms, like what I was working on for my dissertation, I was worried about phosphorus. Now Lake Okeechobee is a little bit different. It goes both ways because we have so much natural phosphorus in the state of Florida. So it can be nitrogen or phosphorus limited depending on, on the time of year. So um, I just want people to really understand the role of nutrients and the difference between nitrogen and phosphorus and what we can do to, for example, phosphorus is really easy to remove because it's adsorptive, it's, it's hydrophobic, it wants to attach onto something else. So we can have filter media and infiltration trenches to remove that phosphorus that will prevent those, those freshwater cyanobacteria blooms from, from producing. Now nitrogen is a little bit tougher because it needs that biological degradation. Um, so it takes time in detention. So ponds and, um, you know, detention ponds, retention ponds are, are better for, for nitrogen removal. Very interesting. Thank you very much for all that information, Tracy. We appreciate all of your expertise on the topic tonight. I wanted to give you some time as we're kind of rounding the nine o'clock hour to promote yourself. Uh, tell us how we can find you, any productions you're working on. We we understand you were on Mythbusters last season and you're on another show now. So give us a little bit of insight about what, what you're doing right now with production shows and, um, and talk about yourself some. Yeah. Um, and sorry, guys, I was like super nervous in the beginning. So I know I started a lot, but I'm good now. Um, <laughs> you can find me at Inspector Planet on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, and I was on Mythbusters to search. It was a lot of fun. I got to try to paint a room with C4 and I got to drive a car and press a button that took the passenger seat right out laterally. It was pretty awesome. Uh, and I have some videos on that. If you guys contact me on social media, I can give you like a, you know, a reel of all the cool stuff that we did on, on Mythbusters. But now I'm on, um, I do a segment, an um, animal myth busting segment on animal outtakes, which is on ABC. And this week I'm on an episode of Awesome Planet, which is on Fox. And I'm talking about red tide and using biofilters to actually remove um, remove the red tide toxin and cells from the water column. So using native species filter feeders to, to help alleviate some of those red tide effects. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, and I'm working on a few other things, but nothing's like set yet. So I can't really talk about it. Very good, very good. So you're on Facebook as well, Dr. Tracy Fanara, and then are you on Instagram as well? I missed if you said you're on Yeah, that's, Instagram's my favorite. Okay, just as your name on Instagram? Inspector Planet, yeah. Cool, okay, all right, good deal. Yeah, Inspector Planet on Instagram, and I do a lot of Instagram stories, and if you ask me a question or tell me to talk about a certain topic, I will do that. I love Instagram stories. Awesome. Um, thing that I wanted to leave everybody with is a lot of people are asking what we're doing about the Florida red tide bloom. Um, and now we're looking at mitigation strategies to actually, you know, it's kind of like wildfires. They have to happen. They're natural. But when they get out of control, 
that's when people intercede. And the question is how to intercede with Florida Red Tide without posing long-term effects on the ecosystem. And we're looking at a number of different strategies right now, and we're starting our preliminary trials coming up. So hopefully we can figure out a way to alleviate those symptoms, at least in the canalways where people don't have the choice to actually like leave like you do when you go to the beach. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. As we close tonight, I wanted to let you know, look at this view right here. This is uh, from the uh, International Space Station. This is how they celebrated Thanksgiving. We hope you enjoy the video, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for another edition of the Carolina Weather Group. Hello down there on the good Earth, and all the best from the International Space Station. I am Expedition 57 Commander Alexander Gerst, and next to me we have Serena Onion, Chancellor Flight Engineer from NASA. Well, today is a special day, especially for me, because I've already had the honor several times in my life to spend a Thanksgiving together with an American, which always makes it an especially great experience. Uh, so tonight we will have a Thanksgiving dinner uh, up here on the International Space Station covering three continents together with our Russian colleague Sergei Prokopyev. And this is our turkey. Like Alex said, this is what we're going to be enjoying this evening. We've got everything from turkey to candied yams to stuffing to special spicy pound cakes. We're very excited. Thanksgiving is a time to spend with those whom you love, whomever that might be. And so we'll be enjoying this meal together, but then also calling our loved ones back on planet Earth. And so we hope that whether you are at home or deployed around the globe, that you are able to find some time to spend those to spend with friends and or family. So definitely from the crew of Expedition 57, from our home to yours, we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. And we are thankful for you, the loyal Carolina Weather Group listener. Thanks for listening to us over this holiday weekend, whether you're at home or on the road. We appreciate it. We are back next Wednesday, December the 4th, with an all-new episode featuring Chief Meteorologist Aubrey Arbatowitz. She's from WHSV in Virginia. She's also a co-host of the popular Weather Brains podcast. The following week, we are talking with Michael Binsky. He is a storm chaser and photographer, and we round out the year with the Weather Channel's Jim Cantori on December the 18th. As always, you can join the conversation, be a part of our live broadcast Wednesday night at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time on the Carolina Weather Group's Facebook, Twitch, Periscope, or YouTube pages, or find the conversations right here on the audio podcast from the Carolina Weather Group, available on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. I'm James Briarton in Charlotte.